The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. We know that humans and gorillas share a large percentage of characteristics, from DNA to similar social systems and physiology, and perhaps even psychology. So what are the connections between the health of animals and the health of humans? The vision of Ugandan-based conservation through public health is to reduce and control the transmission of disease where people, wildlife, and livestock meet, to improve African public health, and through this, help protect gorillas from human-related diseases and illnesses. Our guest today is Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka from Uganda, who founded Conservation Through Public Health in 2002 to address exactly these challenges. Through loss of habitat, constant siege by poachers, civil unrest and warfare, Dr. Zikusoka identified excuse me, identified a serious threat to the gorillas, the zoonotic transmission of human diseases to the animals, causing afflictions ranging from tuberculosis to scabies. Utilizing innovative methodology and a multidisciplinary approach, Gladys and her team focus on the interdependence between the health of wildlife and of people. For in areas where wildlife, people, and livestock intersect, a health issue in one invariably affects the health and survival of the others. Trained as a veterinarian by profession, she set up the first veterinary unit in the Uganda Wildlife Authority, pioneering the first wildlife translocations in Uganda since the 1970s. She also developed the first community education campaigns on the risks of disease transmission between humans, gorillas, and other species. So joining us today from Uganda, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to join you here from Uganda. It's a pleasure to have you. So you're a, a rather fascinating, well-rounded woman. Uh, I was reading your website, and I get your uh, e-news and letters, and we happened to see each other back in September at the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival. So it's a pleasure to have you here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, a little bit about your background and accomplishments, and how that got you to uh, the conservation uh, through public health in Uganda? 
Um, <laughs> well, I could say that I... Hello? So by saying that I've grown up here in Uganda most of my life. And we, I've always had pets since I was young. And I always wanted to be a vet, veterinarian. And then at the age of 12, I made up my mind that I want to be a veterinarian. But during my secondary school, I started a wildlife club where I was. And it really got me interested in wildlife. We took the kids to the National Park, Queen Elizabeth National Park, when there were very few animals and you could walk everywhere. So how did you get from Uganda and taking children through the parks I was to, the, to the um, uh, University of Veterinary College in London? Um, I actually decided to do my vet degree in London because I, I thought that that was the best place to do veterinary medicine. And during that time, I was given an opportunity to work in the national parks on a special project. So my first project was in Budongo Forest, working on chimps, looking at parasites in chimpanzee dung. And later I looked, I worked in Bwindi with the mountain gorillas, comparing parasites and bacteria in gorillas visited by tourists and those not visited by tourists. This was in 1994. And then at the end, I felt like I wanted to be a vet who only works with wild animals. And as a result, I got the, my first job was the first veterinarian for Uganda Wildlife Authority in 1996. So you've been working with wildlife for quite some time. Um, what, is, what are the responsibilities of the Ugandan Wildlife Authority? The Ugandan Wildlife Authority is an organization that it's a government parastato, which means that it's a government agency but has some kind of autonomy. Um, and basically, it manages the wildlife on behalf of the country. And so the veterinary department was very new because vets in wildlife medicine is quite a new thing anyway, because most people think that wild animals should just be left on their own. And when they die, they just die of natural causes. But of course, with human interference and wildlife coming closer and closer to people, there's many reasons why wildlife dies prematurely. And that's why... It was important now to have a wildlife veterinarian, especially when guerrilla tourism had just begun and everybody was concerned that because we share over 98% genetic material with gorillas, we can make each other sick. And if you're going to bring tourists, we're going to be quite close to the gorillas. It was very important that we don't end up hurting the gorillas through human disease. So that brings a question. Uh, can... If a tourist is going to into the, one of the parks to see and have a, a visit with the gorillas, and let's say they've got a cold or a flu, are they prevented from visiting the gorillas, or what precautions must be taken? Um, if a tourist has a cold or flu, they're not allowed to see the gorillas. If they admit it when they arrive, they get a refund. If they don't admit it, but they start coughing and sneezing because of the trek and as we are approaching the gorillas, then they are not allowed to see them and they don't get a refund. But everybody's given rules before they arrive, so you shouldn't really be closer than five meters to the gorillas, five to seven meters. And if you get an allergy, you should turn away to cough or sneeze. If you want to go to the bathroom, um, you have to move a certain distance away, um, at least 100 meters, 200 meters from the gorillas. And then you have to dig a hole 30 centimeters deep. 
and it's covered. So we have all those regulations, but we also want to introduce others. Well, this is excellent. I mean, I... I, I had the pleasure of seeing uh, the gorillas from the Rwanda side, not the Uganda side. Yes. Um, I've been to Uganda in 2007, where I met one of your colleagues with the Wildlife Authority at the IPPT uh, conference, International Peace Through Tourism, I believe that was. And um, you might have been there, and I recall at that time there were no veterinary colleges or uh, much veterinary medicine students going on in Uganda. So since you've brought this to Uganda, has, um, have, has it grown? Are there more veterinary students? Are you encouraging uh, people from the communities that this is a viable option? Yes, actually, after becoming the first vet for Uganda Wildlife Authority, I effectively was the first full-time wildlife wildlife vets in the country. Um, there was, at the same time, another full-time vet was recruited to work at the Uganda Wildlife Education Center. And ever since then, we've had very, the number of vets has grown. So I would say now we probably have maybe six full-time wildlife veterinarians and an additional 10 who do it part-time. So it's really taken shape. There's a momentum now for wildlife veterinarians working in different organizations. Some are in the NGO community, others in government. Yes, it's very exciting. So I, I would suggest that perhaps students from elsewhere around the world that are interested in veterinary medicine, it might be a good volunteer opportunity to come and study with you for, um, and learn how an organization such as Conservation Fruit Through Public Health has come from really nothing in uh, a, a grassroots startup to being what it is today because of pretty much the vision of one woman, you. That's, that's an astonishing and, a, and an amazing uh, accomplishment. So I congratulate you on that. Uh, I've gone through your website a little bit, and uh, the, the, the vision of conservation through public health is to prevent and control disease transmission where wildlife people and their animals meet while cultivating a winning attitude to conservation and public health in local communities. Tell us more about this winning attitude. How do you define that and how do you accomplish that? Um, we do, actually, we, the reason why we, our vision goes beyond only preventing disease transmission, we also want to create a winning attitude because it's very important for the communities to change their behavior. It's not enough to just prevent disease. It's very important to have some level of behavior change. And so that basically means that we want them to be, support conservation and have positive attitudes towards conservation um, and public health. But, and so that's what we mean by winning attitudes. And do you find it's working? Has, has um, through the original place where uh, CTPH, I'm going to call it CTPH for short, from your original <laughs> office, do you have more locations now throughout the country? Do you travel or do you set up um, community satellites? Yes, we do. And I think we've made a lot of progress in changing community attitudes. And of course, when we started this out, it's very new to combine health and conservation. And the, the main reasons we did it was to prevent disease and have a... And we also felt that if people see that they're getting a benefit from conservation... Um, through improving their health care, they'll have a better attitude towards conservation. And 
we're seeing it in the communities that we work in. Um, currently, we consistently reach um, 20,000 people through village health and conservation teams, and they're really changing. They're becoming so positive. The protected gorillas in that have decided to settle in community land um, after they've been kicked out of the group or can't keep up with the group and tolerated them raiding their crops from time to time. They've, you know, they're, they're much more tolerant of human-wildlife conflict and they hope to reduce it as well. So they're very positive about the gorillas. And of course, what's also really helped is that Bwindi has got a great opportunity because 20% of the revenue from tourism entry fee shared with the communities. So when we added on improving the healthcare, then I think we have a great, it's going really well in Bundi. And we have expanded to Queen Elizabeth National Park, which is also in southwestern Uganda, a little bit further north of Bundi. And here we're trying to look at the same kind of model, but in a savannah ecosystem. So there we're working to improve the attitudes of the pastoralists, who have a lot of resentment towards the park because they were asked to leave the park in order to create a national park. And they want to graze their cattle in the national park and everywhere else. And so we work with them and we improve the health of their livestock, working with them and making their community animal health workers become conservationists. And they've rescued a baby elephant that was drowning, which is something they would never have done um, when it's, it's long parents and now this elephant is at the Uganda Wildlife Education Center so it's it's very exciting that people are really beginning to change because they see that you care about something which is important to their lives which is their health care and actually our latest project now has just begun is a similar kind of model in eastern Uganda in Pianupe Wildlife Reserve which is very not known by anybody unless because it's a wildlife reserve, but it's the second largest protected area in Uganda, and we're working with Karamajong pastoralists as well. <laughs> That's incredible. This 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 is amazing. I'd say you've made a lot of progress where in other nations across Africa, this connection, this link between public health and conservation hasn't quite um, come through. I know it's very... Um, clear in southwest africa namibia and botswana and but not quite so clear in east africa and uganda is considered more eastern central africa correct so bringing um so uh, yes okay east africa so what is um what are some of the links between that you're helping people understand between uh the health of animals and the health of people in terms of what can be transmitted and how are you going about working with the communities to reduce the possibility of disease transmission? Um, well, it's, it actually came as a very um, great surprise when I started out as a wildlife veterinarian and later on extended into public health because we had scabies in mountain gorillas which resulted in the death of an infant and sickness in the rest of the group, which only recovered with treatment with ivermectin. And it was eventually traced to people living around the park who have very little health care. And how did the gorillas get the scabies from the people? I don't think they touched each other. But when the gorillas love to go outside into people's gardens to eat their banana plants, and they possibly found dirty clothing on a scarecrow, because people put up scarecrows to scare wildlife from their gardens, and gorillas are very curious by nature, especially the young ones. 
the infants and they may have touched the clothing and then it spread through the group. Because to get scabies from someone, you don't have to touch them, but you, you can wear their sweater. And so this was the first proven outbreak from people to gorillas. And then there have been many suspected outbreaks, including respiratory outbreaks, um, tuberculosis in captive settings, um, measles outbreaks in Rwanda, where the other population of mountain gorillas is found. And so they can get all those diseases from us, including diarrhea. So basically we share almost all diseases that we can pick up from each other. Of course, there's also Ebola, which can spread, which has spread from gorillas to people who have touched them or eaten them, like in Central Africa. So generally we share almost all diseases. It's just that it's much easier for us to go to the doctor than for the gorillas to go to the doctor. So it's very important to try and prevent these diseases in the gorillas. Thank you. All right now, we're going to head into a short break. Stick with us. We're with Dr. Uh, Gladys Kalima Zikusoka from Uganda and the uh, Conservation Through Public Health Organization. So we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back to Our Wild World. My guest today is Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. And before the break, we were, thank you, we were talking about conservation through public health, the organization that Gladys helped founded. And uh, it deals with how closely related um, 
disease crossovers are between human, livestock, and wildlife. And Gladys was telling us earlier about her work with gorillas. So let's pick up from gorillas, and then we're going to head into a little bit more about what ctph.org does. So you can look that up online, ctph.org, conservationthroughpublichealth.org. So um, Gladys, what are... we? Prior to the break, we had talked about illnesses transferred from humans to gorillas through the tourism when they visit. And you had cleared up that uh, when a tourist is ill, that that permit uh, is either refunded if they're known about it or they have to visit another time. So what are some of the top threats besides human illness to gorillas in terms of, let's say, crossovers between livestock and gorillas? Yes, some of the great threats on top of disease is um, there's quite a lot of human-wildlife conflict. When gorillas go into people's gardens or people come into the park, there is conflict, especially when they're outside in people's gardens eating their crops. And that creates a lot of conflict and ill will. Another threat is the very high human population growth around Buindi, which means that it's very hard to get a buffer zone where there's no where the gorillas can move without coming into contact with people. I mean, other threats that gorillas face, especially not only mainly in other parts of like Rwanda and DRC, especially, is there's still a lot of, well, there is poaching for daika and bush pigs inside the forest, so gorillas can get caught in the snares. But there's also further west in Africa, there's a problem of the bushmeat trade. Thankfully, it's not a problem in Uganda, but it's a problem in other parts of Africa. So the legal wildlife trade is a problem, too. So I heard you correctly that poaching and um, killing of gorillas in Uganda is not a problem. It's not a problem. And how how did you manage? How did you manage that? Is that handled through the outreach and the education that the Gorilla Research Center is involved with? Um, Yes, it really makes a difference. Changing community attitude. It's really worth putting a lot of time into that because the communities around Windy have benefited so much since tourism began. Some of the money from tourism is shared with them. And then a lot of the education programs like that's conservation through public health, that's CTPH, really help to improve people's attitudes. When they see that you care about them and their health and their quality of life, then it makes them feel more positive about conservation. And so when we carry out the education, we talk about how important the gorillas are, how we are a threat to them because of disease, and how they are critically endangered, and yet they're a source, a sustainable source of income for the local community. So I've often said that conservation really is about people, that we can do a lot for wildlife, but when the local communities in Africa or where the wildlife lives or the conflict is, that if we don't care and secure for people, then it's very difficult to get people to care about the wildlife that they live with. So what are some of the um, projects and programs that Conservation Through Public Health and the Research Center and other community outreach programs do? What are some of the other aspects of what your organization does with the local communities to um, highlight and educate about these vector crossovers between humans, livestock, and wildlife? 
Yes, we, we have three integrated programs in CTPH. One of them is wildlife health and conservation, and the other one is community health, and the other one is sustainable livelihoods. And all the three programs are connected to each other. So I'll focus more on the community health education program. Um, we have groups of volunteers who are selected by the local leaders, and each one of them, at least we have one per village that we're working in, and they go out and visit people in their homes and carry out education. And they talk about the links between gorillas and people, um, our health, uh, tourism, sustainable livelihoods. And when it comes to health, they focus on hygiene and sanitation, because a lot of diseases like the scabies that the gorillas got from the people is due to poor hygiene and sanitation. We talk about um, nutrition as well, uh, infectious disease like TB, tuberculosis, KBs, diarrhea, HIV, AIDS, encouraging people to vaccinate their children for measles. And then we also talk about family planning, believe it or not, because we realize that some people have, many people have too many children. They have like at least 10 children who they really can't look after. They can't take them to school. They can't give them proper health care. And as a result, they get diseases that can be prevented. And so we realized that we really had to also address family planning. And so as they talk about the health issues, they also talk about the conservation issues, gorilla conservation, forest conservation, sustainable agriculture. And in the process, they're changing people. And we, we are recording how these people are changing over time. And we're finding that, for example, more than we, when we started the program, only 12 percent of the communities we worked in had a hand washing facility and now over about 60 percent have hand washing facilities and this is not because we gave them hand washing facilities they just realized that it's important to have one and those are the kind of behavior change that we're in the communities which is very encouraging that that's very encouraging i've been working in uh, Kenya, not Uganda, but northern Kenya, on some of the similar mm-hmm. issues with communities and getting sanitation, not only for human waste, but hand washing and how that really makes a big difference in terms of disease transmission and, and the huge steps that that can accomplish. So I'm very, very impressed at what you've been able to accomplish. How long has conservation mm-hmm. through public health been uh, operating in Uganda? CTPH has been operating for about 10 years. Um, We were founded in 2003. We founded CTPH in 2003. And we actually started food programs maybe in 2005. Um, Yes, it's it's very exciting. I think we're making progress. I know that it's very new, integrating health and conservation. And the first reaction people ask is, how can you do the two together? But um, I think we're realizing more and more that it's working. And we are trying to develop some information that we can look at and see how it's supporting each other. I mean, I'm really happy about a certain situation where one of the gorillas, the old gorillas in the group, could no longer keep up with his group. And he was the, his group was the very first to be habituated. It's called Bruhendeza because he sleeps a lot. <laughs> and he was heading the first group called M group. <laughs> and then he got really old at one stage. And so they called me out and said, um, what can we do about Ruhendeza? He's in community land. So when we went to check on Ruhendeza, we realized that the community was tolerating him. He really felt comfortable in community land. He didn't want to go back to the forest where he would have to fight with the other gorillas. And his group, he accepted he couldn't keep up with his group anymore. 
And we talked to the communities and said, Ruhendeza has brought a lot of tourism for you. Because of him being so accommodating, tourism began in Buindi. So can you tolerate him eating a banana plant from time to time? So they, our volunteers went and spoke to all their community. And they looked after Ruhendeza till he died. That's amazing. And when he died, everybody, I know. And when he died, everybody was so sad. They came to his grave. And it just shows that the community is really changing. They're beginning to really appreciate gorillas and see that they're a direct link to improving their quality of life. I don't think you, pro- you could have asked for, in a best-case, wishful scenario, that that kind of an incident would have happened. I think the community taking on this gorilla, this old guy, and seeing him yes. um, as a part of their community, uh, that it actually stretched further to the community of the gorillas that were not creating quite as much of an issue by being on their lands. That's astonishing. That is uh, a huge, huge step forward. So, um, <laughs> uh, what? We I'm look sorry? after our old people. They even said to me, we look after our old people when they're sick and about to die, so we should do the same for the gorilla. So that was really sweet. That, that's an <laughs> astonishing step forward compared to, let's say, 10 years ago, 15 or 20 years ago. That is a yes. huge step, and you should be highly applauded for that. So tell us a Thank little you. more about um, uh, the, the formation of the Conservation Community Animal Health Works. And I understand it was modeled from experiences from a savanna ecosystem and working with pastoralists. How did you modify that to work with the forest communities and the gorillas? Actually, it started with the other way around. We started off by working with the government has um, endorses what you call community health volunteers or village health teams. And so we added conservation to that and eventually started to call them village health and conservation teams or community conservation health volunteers. Then when we replicated the model to Queen Elizabeth National Park, we wanted to do the same thing with the savannah ecosystem because the people there are pastoralists and they care very much about their livestock and their cattle more than anything else. So we thought let's also create a similar group of people who are generally called community animal health workers we call them community conservation animal health workers, and they go out and improve people's behavior as well and attitudes towards conservation. On top of looking at the disease issues between the livestock and the wildlife, you know, like things like tuberculosis, brucellosis, yes, mouth disease. Please do, because you said, let me interrupt one second. You said a minute ago that conservation through public health is relatively new, and you're correct. Um, which is sort of an odd consideration when you think how closely humans and wildlife and health issues, uh, the new term is zubiquity, the, the crossovers between wildlife and people, especially in terms of disease. So, yes, tell us a bit more about that. Yes, the disease, we, we thought that would focus on diseases that um, could spread between animals and people. So brucellosis, which we had seen before in buffalo and in cattle and people who eat the cattle products. And then tuberculosis is a big one because both those diseases are very hard to treat. Then we thought of things like foot and mouth disease, which doesn't cause disease in people, but it causes a lot of production loss in the cattle. So it affects people's livelihood directly. So we are looking at those diseases and how to reduce their prevalence. Um, and because the cattle keepers saw that we're caring about their animals and we're also talking about the importance of 
conservation and not really grazing their cows with the wildlife because they could pick up diseases from each other, we started to change their attitudes. So we had another great surprise where there's a baby elephant that was drowning in the lake near their village. And we think the mother was shot or the mother had died. So they rescued this baby elephant, tied it up with ropes on a canoe and took it to the riverbank, something they wouldn't have done before. They would have said, no, if we talk about rescuing an elephant or looking after any sick animal, they'll think that we're trying to poach it or something like that. But this time around, I told them, no, you and Uganda World Authority have to trust each other. They want the best for the animals and they don't, who wants to have a better relationship with you? So they brought the elephant to the mainland and the warden was so excited. He told me, Gladys, you can't believe it. Your rangers, I mean, your volunteers from the community they have been great. They, in their crude manner, rescued this baby elephant that was about two weeks old. And this elephant was eventually taken to the zoo, to the Uganda Wildlife Education Center. And he's really educating Ugandan children who can't go to, zoo, to the national park about elephants. Because if he had remained in the park, he would have died. Um, so he's called Hamukungu after the village. But it's, so it's really great. We're really pleased that they've changed their attitude enough that they can start to save wildlife. And that's a huge thing to be proud of for the community. Not only is the elephant named after their community, but that they yes. really took it upon themselves through the education that they've learned from you and the coordination and the collaboration that it really, what they do and what we do as people to benefit wildlife will make a huge difference on the communities. And we here in the West think that's sort of a no-brainer, but in Africa, this is a relatively newer concept. So we've got just a couple of minutes to break. So um, I'm going to ask a question with hopefully that's sort of a, a short answer. What are some of, you mentioned TB and brucellosis and wildlife diseases, and I know TB can transfer through vector populations from people to wildlife and wildlife back to people and into cattle. What are some of the cascade of consequences Mm -hmm. when disease runs through a population of wildlife, and how does it end up affecting the human community? Um, Something like tuberculosis is is quite scary because... We've had tuberculosis in the buffaloes and in the warthogs and in lions. As lions, not so much in Uganda, but in South Africa. And um, it's, if people end up eating the fresh game meat, they can get tuberculosis. It's very hard to treat. If tuberculosis goes in a person, the normal treatment for human TB is well known, and that can work. But if you're immunocompromised and you have HIV, it's harder for that treatment to work. And if you get the bovine TB, which comes from buffalo or cattle, then some of the drugs won't work. So it's really important to prevent getting TB from animals to the people. And that's one thing that we are very concerned about. And we try our best to make sure that it doesn't happen. And um, brucellosis is a very difficult disease to treat. Unfortunately, in Africa, brucellosis has the same symptoms as malaria. So if somebody, if you report to the clinic and you say, I have fever, they'll just give you treatment for malaria. And then when they find that you're not getting better, then they'll think, oh, maybe let's try brucellosis. And then it's really set in and it's very difficult to treat. So we try our best to get people to understand that, you know, they shouldn't just eat meat of an animal that's found dead. And they should be very careful about food hygiene and food safety. 
Well, this is an amazing conversation. We're going to cut away for a short break. So stay with us. We're coming back with a whole lot more very inter- interesting information with our guest, Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka of the Conservation Through Public Health in Uganda. We'll be right back. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. We're with Dr. Gladys uh, Kalemazikusoka, and we're talking about conservation through public health, which is a very upcoming, uh, important and critical aspect that research has discovered that there are crossovers, very close connected crossovers between where people live, where livestock lives, and where wildlife lives. And we've been talking about, for one example, uh, the gorillas and transmission of disease. So, Gladys, could you tell us more about the advocacy work uh, that you're doing with your organization through the Uganda Population Health and Environment Working Group? And I think that's also connected to the poverty conservation, poverty and conservation learning group. How do these all link together? 
Yes, we got into advocacy because we realized after a while when you're doing something and you want it to really start to influence policy and get the decision makers and the policy makers to understand it better, you needed to form a coalition and get other people to move along with you. And so we, that made us feel that we need to get into advocacy. So the Uganda Population Health and Environment Working Group was started by Population Reference Bureau, who are based in America, at a conference where they tried to set up working groups in Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Rwanda. And actually the Uganda one and the Kenyan and Ethiopia are the ones that have really taken off. And it became natural for CTPH to be coordinating it because we had the a best practice model for integrating family planning, health and environment, and we could teach others. And it's been great because a lot of people have got interested in it. Some of them have started implementing similar work, even within Buindi, like the Buindi and Munganga Conservation Trust. Others in um, Vetco, which works with farmers, is also integrating population, health and environment. Then we have an uh, ecological Christian organization in Lake Victoria, Benson, and also on the Kenya side, Friends of Lake Victoria, who are using the similar methods that we have, like village health and conservation teams. They're also working with those groups and creating those groups wherever they are. So that's really exciting. And how does it link to the Poverty and Conservation Learning Group? That's another advocacy group, which was started by the IIED, Institute of, International Institute of Environment and Development. And um, they were trying, again, to establish links between conservation and poverty alleviation. And when we first joined the group, even educating people in the group that family planning and health is, a, is an issue to do with poverty, and um, it's a public health issue to do with poverty. It took a bit of a while, but it didn't take too long, and they really embraced it, and they're used, seeing us as a special case study within the PCLG to show the linkages between health, poverty, and conservation by looking through the angle of public health. So that's really exciting as well. And that also has a lot of NGOs. Some of them are also members of the Uganda PHE Working Group. But we have a mix. We have conservation NGOs, health NGOs, community development NGOs in both groups. We're trying to influence the policymakers. Because actually in, in Uganda, being a poor country, people are more concerned about livelihoods than conservation. And so when you link conservation to poverty alleviation, we find that the policymakers, the people in government, the members of parliament are much more receptive to what you're saying. If you just tell them protect the wildlife, protect the ecosystems for future generations, they're like, yeah, right. We have other things to worry about. But if you say, but if you protect them, it's going to make people's quality of life better, then they're more likely to listen. So we're kind of learning how to make all the linkages even more. Well, it sounds like you've not, you're not only learning, but you're succeeding and achieving an incredible amount in a relatively short time. Um, I've been working in Africa for 30 years, and what you said since your organization began, you have accomplished a tremendous amount. So you have collaborations between NGOs, government, and public health sectors. So what is it that the local communities do to incentivize each other and further this message that is coming down through government and the various organizations? Actually, the the local communities in Uganda, um, and especially in Buwindi where we started working, are just great. I mean, we started off with really great volunteers. Um, Within maybe a year of the program, they said to us that 
like to get a livelihood project so that they can continue the conservation and health work. And so one group asked for goats, one group asked for cows, and the donor who gave us the funding, which was USAID office in America, were really um, understanding and they said, okay, it's fine as long as it's contributing to the overall goal. So we, some of the money for workshops was used to buy livestock and goats and we gave them to them. And they developed a self-sustaining system of income generation. And then later on, the other groups came along introducing the Village Saving and Loan Associations, which was CARE through Bwindi and Mungahinga Conservation Trust. And they reinvested that income into that. So it's, they've been able to continue even beyond donor funding. And they, they're just great. They collect data every month. Some of it goes to the health center. Some of it goes to Uganda Wildlife Authority, where you look at the, they hope, Uganda Wildlife Authority in looking at the interactions between people and gorillas and homes that are visited often by gorillas and how to reduce that conflict and also how to improve the health of those homes even more so than the other homes where necessary. So it's really working well. The communities are really dedicated. They're so happy. They're always giving great testimonies about how we're helping them. And really, you just need to do a little for them, but it goes a long way in uh, changing their attitudes, which is I, great. I can tell. So our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about cons- what conservation through public health is doing, please visit their website at ctph.org. Sign up for their newsletter. I receive their newsletter all the time, and it's amazing to see the accomplishments that is being um that are being, okay, I'm repeating word, accomplished, because so many projects throughout Africa through the last uh, dec- five decades, I'm going to say the last 50 years, there's a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of change that is going on. Uganda is very forward thinking. And just as a question, because I know somebody will probably ask, how does this all link with, um, so you're usually in southern Uganda. Um, Northern yes. Uganda has been the site of civil war, child soldiers, a lot of activity, um, refugees, moving people, which, of course, can carry disease and transmit disease. So um, how is that working in terms of the northern area where there's been a lot of trouble? And um, how, is, how is it bringing that together? Um, in the northern area, actually, there's been a lot of they're beginning to resettle people. Um, back into their homes now that the Kony War is kind of ended in northern Uganda. It's moved, unfortunately, to other parts of Africa. And um, we found, actually, I'm on the board of Uganda Wildlife Authority, and uh, some of, we visited Murchison Falls National Park as a board um, in northern Uganda. And it's one of the parts that really suffered from Kony War. And we're finding that there's a lot of conflict, actually, between the people and the elephants, because when the people were displaced from their homes and went into the camps. The elephants started to settle where their people were. And now the people have come back home and they found that the elephants are there and the elephants don't want to leave. So there's a lot of conflict between the people and the elephants. And I think that may be an area that we should think of working in soon, um, at least in the, in the future, because we feel that our way of enabling livelihoods to come to the people and linking it to conservation can actually change the way they do things, so that there's less conflict with wildlife. But yeah, it is. it has affected Uganda a lot. So you've said um, the elephants are moving back into northern Uganda. Uh, recently, uh, 
in fact, just this last weekend, Wildlife Direct was in town and uh, with yes. Dr. Paula Kahumbu and showing the film Battle for the Elephants. So um, I understand uh, Conservation Through Public Health, your organization, and Wildlife Direct are working together on Hands Off yes. Our Elephant. Are you working to implement that in the northern area? Um, we're working more... The, the main way that we're working with Wildlife Direct is we blog on the Wildlife Direct platform and they raise funds for us. But I've got more involved in the elephant issue because I'm also an alternate member of the CITES Animal Committee um, since last year. And we're really, really concerned about the elephant poaching. It's really escalating in Africa and something really needs to be done. It's not as bad in Uganda, but Uganda is a transit point for ivory coming in from Central Africa and other places. So we really want to step up our law enforcement and also find a way, you know, we're trying to study how if you improve livelihoods of people where elephants are, are they going to poach elephants less? And now that's a study that's being done together with IIED, who started the Poverty and Conservation Learning Group. We are a partner on that, and I'm really interested in it because it's a big issue. And um, we hope that we'll be able to see some linkages because we can address the elephant poaching issue in different ways. And I think it's, we have to put all the ways together. It's not only law enforcement and you know, stopping the demand from China and Vietnam, but maybe we also have to improve people's livelihoods so they think to themselves, well, if I kill this elephant, I could lose um, a job, I could lose this income I'm getting from tourists who come to the park, so maybe I won't kill this elephant, I'll protect it. So it's we, need, big, we need to think of other ways to stop it happening. It's, that's a big task. Um, as you said, elephant, the elephant crisis is huge. It is escalate, escalated out of proportion, almost out of control. But it's no yes. longer just a wildlife issue. This is an international law enforcement issue. So what your organization is doing in terms of educating and providing for the communities and that communities are important, just as yes. if not more than the wildlife, that is a huge step forward because you won't be able to start changing attitudes about elephant poaching until you work with people and people uh, incorporate that into their lifestyle. So um, yes. another thing that's coming up, uh, from your website, you have an upcoming program in Tennessee. Uh, this sounds intriguing. Um, what does guerrilla conservation have in common with the provision of contraceptives to women? I think this is where it's tied in. Yes. Um, the upcoming program, was it what, the Society of Environmental Journalists Conference? I think it was. And we, I presented over there. And I was asked to present because a journalist who worked for Los Angeles Times, Ken Weiss, came out to Uganda and visited our project and a couple of other projects to write a Beyond 7 Billion series about the problem of the population growth rate all around the world. And the part on population environment, he wrote about our work with the gorillas in Buwindi. He actually witnessed uh, women giving Depo-Provera injections to other women so that they could control their fertility and not have to have babies every year. And he was really impressed. He actually thought it was a human rights issue. So he actually invited me to present at the conference where he spoke about population, environment, and human rights. And so that was uh, recorded by somebody. But, yeah, it's something that we do a lot, and uh, we're excited that within a very short time we had a very great increase in 
new family planning users, a 12-fold increase, and which really means that the interbirth interval is increasing. And after some time, we're going to see that family sizes get smaller. And it means that women are liberated. They can do something else with their lives. Um, they can start a business. They can spend more time with their kids. And life is getting better for the women. They're getting empowered. And actually, with the program we have, we find with the family planning and environment and health program, we find that women are getting more involved in conservation and they're becoming leaders in their community. And men are getting more involved in family planning. And so it's, it's actually helping to, in, as far as gender goes, it's helping couples to talk to each other and respect each other more, which is great. This is amazing. Um, I'm going to have to come and visit you in Uganda on my next trip because, <laughs> I mean, the strides that you're making since, you know, compared to the work I do in Kenya and Tanzania, um, I'm going to leave out Southwest Africa, Botswana, Namibia. They're, they're sort of a different, it's a whole different ball game over there. But for East mm-hmm. Africa, what you have accomplished by collaborating not only with NGOs, government, wildlife authorities, but bringing in the communities is just astonishing. So um, there's another little question here that seems to tie in. How does the, the rural-urban migration of people and wildlife contribute to global warming? I think that also had something to do with some of the uh, information you've been putting out. Yes, that particular topic came out by one of the speakers, um, actually, I think it was Ken himself, he visited Southeast Asia and he noticed that it had a lot to do. Of course, the, the, the cities are really, really crowded. So many people in the cities. And he found that it had a lot to do with that high population growth and density within the urban populations was contributing a lot to global warming. And so he basically looked at population environment in the context of Southeast Asia, urban cities. He took all the different scenarios out in Buindi in the middle of nowhere, bordering Congo, but also very high population growth rates, creating a lot of environmental degradation and affecting endangered species like the mountain gorillas. So he just looked at it at all different perspectives. This is amazing. We're almost out of time here, but what I'm hoping our listeners will understand and what our wild world is really trying to help people Uh, grasp the concept of is that people, wildlife, landscape, climate change, public health are inextricably linked. That we cannot, we, we can no longer afford to look at these, each, each aspect in a vacuum. That we have to start looking at how they're linked. And Gladys, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. We've worked hard thank to get you. this episode to our listeners. I would love to follow up with you another time. So we've got about one minute, 30 seconds. Is there a final note you would like to um, tell to our listeners? Um, I would probably like to say that it would, be, it would love you, the listeners to come and visit Uganda. Um, it's probably not as well known as other countries in Africa as a tourist destination, but Uganda is very beautiful, um, very green all year round. People are highly hospitable and we've got most amazing wildlife. We have the mountain gorillas, the chimpanzees, then the savannah habitat in the mountains. You can get to see everything in a very short time. Elephants, buffaloes, lions everything in a very short time. And I'd um, like to thank you too very much for all your support. 
I've well, really enjoyed being on your show. You're welcome. And I hope you'll be coming to Uganda soon. <laughs> I will be back. You can count on it. So until next week, I'd like to thank Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka and the Conservation Through Public Health. Please check them out, ctph.org. And until next week, this is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 